that focus on convenience didn't used to really exist before. And uh, that's, I would say, has been a critical differentiator that we brought and continue to build upon. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to jump into the world of furniture and sit down with Amir Bag, who is the founder and CEO of Article. Amir, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I want to start with a little bit about your backstory. What led you to launch Article and how did you land on furniture? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, a bit of backstory. I come from a technology, computer engineering, software engineering background, and uh, my previous venture was focused on building uh, e-commerce software and uh, products that we had lots of customers for. The company got acquired, long story short, and uh, I moved to Vancouver and was looking to start my next venture. And uh, I got a call from a good friend of mine that went to computer engineering school with me at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. His name is Andy. And uh, Andy had this uh, <laughs> very seductively attractive idea, and he, he, he called it uh, fill the container. Uh, and the idea was uh, we break down the barriers between consumers and manufacturers and factories and enable this direct platform where consumers can order from factories and uh, typical minimum order quantities of goods uh, in with factory orders revolve around a container. So that's why it was called fill the container. You get a quantity of fill the container, you, you get it made, you ship it over, you cross dock it, distribute it to people's homes and everybody saves a lot of money and it's just making the world of retail a whole lot more efficient. So uh, that was uh, uh, that was the original idea that uh, that Andy had, and uh, we we started talking uh, from there. The idea appealed to me, and uh, we chose furniture as the first vertical to apply that idea to because it was just going to be a whole lot easier to fill a container with sofas than you know espresso coffee machines or something like that. That was the foray into furniture, and of course, as we got into it. The original idea and model had lots of problems with it, but we we got obsessed with the world of furniture and saw lots of opportunities as to how we can make the customer value proposition and the customer experience when it comes to furnishing your home remarkably better. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and then that's been our obsession for the last uh, seven, eight years. So I want to talk a little bit about that customer experience and kind of the insights that you saw as you came into it. The furniture market is pretty crowded across the board. What has Article done to really differentiate itself? And what did you see the industry was kind of doing wrong with their approach? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, it's maybe all too obvious at this point, but at the time that we were doing it, buying furniture online was not a thing. So to begin with, just the simple convenience of with a few clicks of the button, you can furnish your home. And you can furnish your home well to to meet the goals that you have. And bringing that experience live, overcoming the barriers, overcoming the trust barriers, overcoming the risk issues, uh, risks associated with buying sight unseen, and then building a whole supply chain to deliver on the promise because online there is no geo boundaries and 
So with a few clicks, enabling this idea for the few clicks of a button, you can furnish your home. And in our case, we focused on beautiful modern design aesthetics. So you can furnish your home beautifully in a modern manner with a few clicks of a button. That was the fundamental innovation that we brought. We still, that is our singular focus still today. We call it building the easiest way to create beautiful modern spaces. So the, the notion of convenience, the notion of ease, and of course, we for us, we took that far beyond just the buying experience online into the whole delivery experience that you receive. And then, of course, the product stays with you for a long, long time. Uh, so factoring that back into the product design. And so that focus on convenience didn't used to really exist before. And uh, that's, I would say, has been a critical differentiator that we brought and continue to build upon. I would say the other thing, which are a couple of byproducts of this pursuit, uh, but are still very valuable to customers. One is a simple one. By virtue of the fact of being online, you don't have the traditional brick and mortar overheads. And because you don't have the traditional brick and mortar overheads, you can still run a profitable business while increasing the overall customer value proposition. So the price points tend to be a lot more compelling compared to uh, typical B&M retailers. That's one thing. And then the other, which is perhaps maybe even more important, but by virtue of being online, Dave, one thing that happens is, and being direct to consumer, the, you're constantly getting a lot of data and information about your customers around what do they like, what styles do they prefer, does fast delivery matter? What type of delivery experience matter? And down to minute details. And so you end up building a culture of rapid improvements around what we're hearing from a customer. So that even shows in the design and the style and the product build, everything and the material choice of materials ends up being influenced a lot more rapidly on customer feedback than models before. It was a big question, how do we differentiate uh, ourselves in this crowded space? But it's through this focus on convenience, the higher value proposition because of the absence of a brick and mortar overhead. And then lastly, uh, just the direct, the customer obsession that is naturally induced by being so directly connected with the customer and, and, and data and information and harnessing that into everything that we do. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the pandemic. You kind of referenced it a little bit there. We've all seen the numbers that e-commerce went through the roof over the time, and a lot of people were at their homes and taking another look around their house. How did you guys pivot the business and really think about what you need to double down on during the, the time of the pandemic? Yeah, uh, sure. The I would say there was two phases to... Uh, our thinking and planning during the pandemic. The first was on the onset of it, and we were a bit early before companies started closing down. We kind of sensed the risks associated with this virus early. So I think we were all working from home early March. We had switched to contactless delivery before everybody else started switching to to, to contactless delivery. So we were, we were a bit early, and uh, because we were a bit early, there was even more uncertainty as to what's going to happen. So initially, we had planned for, from a business demand perspective, a slowdown and potentially dramatic slowdowns. You, you just didn't know what to expect. And we did experience that for, I think, a couple of weeks. Demand went down by about 20% for us. But then 
it kind of reversed and it started building up. And then our challenges very quickly switched to uh, managing supply and enough supply for um, to meet our customers' demands. So I think it was a phase where it was very agile as an approach. You're constantly monitoring and adjusting your plans and responding. So it's not kind of business as usual from a perspective of your underlying operations aren't stable. You have to, you're in this constant monitoring and adjustment mode. As a senior leadership team, we'd, we would have stand-up meetings every day, reviewing even minute details of what's happening in San Francisco, what's happening in New York, et cetera. And then, of course, the other massive focus for us along since, uh, you know, since the onset was, was how to keep our, of course, customers, but also our warehousing and delivery people safe throughout this whole uh, operation. So that was a huge, I mean, we run five fulfillment centers. We do our own deliveries in a lot of areas. We have a significant logistics setup. So that was a critical area of focus, but we had really committed teams that, that mobilized and moved fast, changing SOPs, procedures, moving to contactless delivery, creating bubble areas, et cetera. So that was... <laughs> maybe gives you a little bit of a flavor of uh, what we went through during this pandemic. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. Yeah, and you know when you think about those changes and how you guys responded in those kind of two phases... How are you taking those lessons and reapplying them into 2021? And have you seen any permanent change in the business as a result? I mean, from a permanent change perspective, of course, the demand trends have continued. And of course, the pandemic is still alive. It hasn't fully gone away yet. But uh, the acceleration of demand uh, and the movement to online is still, those trends and tailwinds are persisting quite strongly. Uh, we're experiencing it, and from any inputs that I get from macroeconomists, they, they seem to indicate the same. And then also the supply chain challenges are still persisting because of the escalating demand and because of the restrictions around supply chain. Those are some challenges that we're continuing to overcome. I mean, in terms of lessons, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can crystally articulate them, but, uh, but we feel it, as a company it has really brought us together more. It has mobilized, motivated us more. When you face adversity as a team and you work through it, it just kind of makes you a better team. And that uh, that is persisting. Sometimes you can also get exposed to how fast you can move when there's strong enough impetus, the amount of change that you can drive in a quick period of time when the impetus is really, really strong. So I think cognizance of that and trying to find stronger impetus to drive changes that matter to our business and our customers. Even a more pronounced focus on safety, employee safety, that is even more pronounced for us as a consciousness. And I think 
we always did emphasize the importance of our front line, but uh, this event has even more, I think, uh, influenced that appreciation and that we're all connected and kind of depend, all depend on each other for this whole thing of life to work. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the choices you made in starting the company. So anybody listening to this, you've heard, you know, a D2C company that stood up their own logistics, doing their own delivery in many markets, big, bulky, relatively costly products compared to a razor blade or something else. Yet you chose to be entirely founder funded and you've never taken any outside funding. What led you to that kind of choice uh, overall? I would say, Dave, that we, we were always focused on profitability, number one. We never went about building this business to build something cool that's that's got futuristic vision that is able to raise a lot of money and uh, and can show a lot of growth but uh, and and at some point maybe the the principles the true underlying driving force behind the principles is an exit that was never our driving force our driving force was to build something that matters build something that's built to last and you can't do that without a strong profit formula underneath everything else that you're doing. So we always had that as a consciousness and, and, and work on that. I think that's one aspect that allowed us to get to profitability early and, and, and that reduced the need of funding overall to begin with. Number two, I would say that I think our approach to work was a bit early in the, in the early days was you manage with what you have. So uh, you would have me doing lots of things, uh, taking customer service calls, figuring out how to run Facebook ads, moving boxes. And there's a lot of value in, in that too, because you learn a lot about the different aspects of your, of your operations. But we didn't really have big teams until we could afford big, bigger teams. So we, this principle of managing, managing with what you, what you had, you know, and it's also kind of just time allocation. We, we allocated time more towards margin correction than fundraising. Now we did raise some funds. Uh, and the other, I guess the fourth factor is we were fortunate I had a previous exit. We could fund it a bit ourselves with me and my co-founders. We did raise a little bit of funny for money from a venture fund, but you know, that venture fund, two of us are, one of my co-founders is a general partner in it and, and I'm a uh, LP in it. So it's a bit, uh, of uh, you can almost call it founder funded. So those were the uh, a bit of good fortune to start with and, and a difference in mindsets is a combination of reasons why we were able to build this successfully and profitably with about a $7 million investment over three and a half years, which is atypical, I understand, for almost ventures, but that was our, that was our story. So with that as the background, when you talk to other entrepreneurs and kind of folks that are getting started, no matter what the business, a lot default to, I must go do a funding round. And, you know, then I have to go do a PR story and talk about the funding story round. Mm-hmm. What advice do you give to founders to kind of mimic and look at the approach that you took? I think in some cases, obviously, there was, there's an appropriate time to actually probably do some fundraising. But I mean, I would first have them be focused. On, I mean, there's a few things that I would say. One would be that the primary focus ought to be thinking about the intrinsics of the business and working on the intrinsics of the business versus formulating a pitch that can raise money. The priorities have to be 
focus on the intrinsics of the business. Two, I think I'd say that don't be afraid to, if you haven't done it before, aspects of the business, you haven't done it yourself, uh, don't be afraid to just, you know, roll up the sleeves and, and try. These things, a lot of these things aren't that hard. I mean, you start doing them and avenues and solutions emerge. So those are a couple of things that uh, that I would say. And uh, and then, uh, you know, if you don't have your own money or, or some, uh, you know, access to angel investments and uh, family and friends investments to get something off the ground, then, then of course you have to go down and do some fundraising. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's more important is, is, I believe is is going at it to build a business, and a business is not a business unless it has a profit formula that comes with it. Well, I think that is a uh, wonderful note to kind of end on there. So I really appreciate you sharing the story of what you've built with Article and the the pretty unique journey that you guys have been. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.